Hey, I'm here with uh, Brandon Vaught. Uh, Brandon was on the show with us tonight from uh, strangenotions.com. And one thing we didn't get a chance to speak about tonight was uh, some of your story. Could you give us a little thumbnail sketch of your conversion story? Sure. So I was born and raised as a Protestant in a really good Presbyterian church uh, for the first 18 years of my life. However, I, I never made any real commitment to the Lord. I never met Jesus in a personal way, probably no fault to the church, more of my own. Uh, but then when I got to college, I fell in by chance with a Methodist campus ministry. Uh, it happened to be the closest church to my dorm. So I got out of bed and ended up there, and I got really involved. I started reading the Bible for the first time. I started praying seriously and regularly, and I fell in love with Jesus. And so after meeting him personally, I just hungered for more. Um, so I started taking on leadership positions. I started leading Bible studies and I got to a point where I, I was pretty set that I wanted to become a Methodist pastor in inner seminary. But then around my senior year of college, this was in 2008, five years ago, I, uh, my now wife and I were both thinking about marriage, and she was born and raised Catholic, and I was born and raised a Protestant. And so we were thinking, what are we going to do when we get married? We're going to go to two different churches. We're going to try and each go to our own or you know, go to both. And that's when I realized that I had never really done Catholicism justice. Uh, I didn't know anything about Catholic teaching. She was pretty much the only Catholic I knew. So I thought, at least out of love for her, I should explore Catholicism and, and see if it's something I could possibly accept. So I uh, started this relentless path of, of reading heavily, of talking with people, um, reading stuff online, you know, engaging people on Catholic websites was huge because I could present my objections and criticisms and they could give me a personalized response instead of, as you mentioned earlier during our other interview, you know, sometimes you just kind of give the answers you want to give instead of the ones people are looking for. So the internet was huge and be able to get personal answers. And then, um, I, uh, decided to enter RCIA, not set on converting to Catholicism, but I just wanted to learn more and test the waters. And in that process, when we covered the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, um, that became the first domino from which all the others fell. Once I became convinced that Jesus was present, body and blood, soul and divinity in the Eucharist, uh, the Catholic Mass, I couldn't stay away because here was this Jesus whom I loved and whom I wanted to meet in the most intimate way possible. And, and here he was at every Catholic church, at every Catholic mass. So after the Eucharist fell, I soon after embraced the authority of the church and from there all of her teachings. And on Easter of 2008, I uh, entered the church. And what convinced you of the Catholic Church's teaching on the Eucharist was Scripture or was it Church Fathers or— both. Those, both of those were uh, very influential. It, it mostly centered on the sixth chapter of John, uh, which as a Protestant, I think I just conveniently ignored or explained away. But after reading Catholic commentary on the passage, uh, especially from the fathers, but also from contemporary writers like Scott Hahn and Mark Shea and Peter Kraft, I began to see that you can't, you can't interpret that other than literally. Um, there were other cases where Jesus would speak symbolically and metaphorically, but this case, because of the circumstances, because so many people left him thinking he must have been speaking metaphorically, but instead he ratchets up the literal language that Jesus really was saying that he wants us to consume his body and blood. And 
at first glance, that sounds like cannibalism until he introduces the sacrament of the Eucharist. And then we discover the means by which we can consume his body and blood. So John 6 and the surrounding interpretations was the hinge on which uh, my conviction fell. And I know you write about, uh, like in college, you were going to the Protestant group, and uh, it was almost out of an obligation to your family. That's right. Yeah, you know, I, I was, like I said, born and raised in a good Presbyterian church, and, and my mom, to her credit, brought us to church every Sunday. And so I knew if I got to college and I stopped going to church, it'd make mom mad, and it would make my girlfriend mad, you know, because she was she, a, a Catholic growing up. She at least embraced Sunday obligation. Um, so I kind of did it out of obedience. And it, it's, as in the story of so many, the, the small thread that God uses, the small thread of faith that continues to hang that God will twing and use to, to bring you back. Uh, you know, if I stopped going to church, I probably, I probably, I definitely wouldn't have found Catholicism. I wouldn't be where I am now. So just that <laughs> routine of going to church on Sunday was, was what kept me in, in, you know, a catching distance of Christ. And, and he eventually brought me all the way. And it, it was through the scriptures that you really encountered Christ? Yeah, you know, through the Gospels, <laughs> which is it sounds so obvious. But, uh, you know, growing up, like many young people, I just, I'd heard about Jesus. I knew all the typical Sunday school stories from the Old Testament and from the New. But I never sat down and read the Gospels. And so when you when you read the Gospels, the Jesus that you discover is far different than sort of the watered-down, bland, felt-bored Jesus of youth, you know, Sunday school. So I discovered this this radical, ravishing, epic figure, you know, who who does battle not just with the evil powers of the world, but the the spiritual powers. And, and I was <laughs> deeply attracted to that. You know, I, I I loved the fact that Jesus comes to do war with with sin and evil. And, and to me, that that was a compelling Jesus. <laughs> he wasn't just a a soft, nice spiritual guru. You know, he was. A, a warrior king who comes to to establish his kingdom on earth. So, reading the gospels, as obvious as it sounds, like won me over to Christ. And that you know, that reminds me too is like uh, you know, anyone serious about the spiritual life, they do realize the struggle of it and the difficulty. And it's like you realize you need a Jesus that's going to fight for you, you know, because yeah. I can't win this battle right, right by myself. And you write about that eloquently about yeah the the challenge, you know, the gospel has for us, and um, but also the love story, right? And you said, like you said, like an epic love story? Yeah, it is. You know, from beginning to end of the Bible, I discovered, this isn't something I knew as a youth, but later on, when you see the typology of the Old Testament and how the whole scriptures point to this bridegroom coming to give his life for his bride and, and thereby consummating their marriage. And so here we have a God who wants to marry the world, and to me, like that was another deeply compelling part of the gospel was, again, Jesus is not just a, a wise teacher who comes with some pithy adages that make your life better. He wants to be in the most intimate relationship with you possible and, and is willing to die for it. And so that, you know, takes stories like Braveheart or Titanic or any of our great love stories and blows them out of the water. You know, here's somebody who will go to the death for the sake of his love for you. And uh, again, that's that swept me over. And also, your work with the poor as a college student was a big factor in your story. Tell us about that. 
So I was a as a college Protestant falling in love with the Lord. Um, like many 20-something Protestants, there was a huge emphasis on social justice, on living out your faith tangibly through practical works. And I very much embraced that. You know, I, I, I thought that to follow Christ means to love the poor. I mean, that's the Gospels are quite clear about that. And so while I was in college, me and some friends um, connected with a group of homeless guys at the local lake in, in the downtown area. And we would we built great friendships with them. We went and visited them once or twice a week for a couple of years. And, you know, we'd eat together, we'd joke and laugh, we'd, we'd drive them to doctor's appointments. And those experiences really affirmed for me the, the fact that Jesus is found in the poor. You know, I think of Matthew 25, where he explicitly identifies himself with the poor. When, when, you, when you brought food to the hungry, when you brought drink to the thirsty, when you clothed the naked, you did it to me. And so seeing Christ in the poor opened up for me um, a deeper relationship with Jesus. And so when I became Catholic, all of that was magnified and illuminated even more because now I was in communion with saints like Mother Teresa or St. Damien of Molokai, you know, or um, St. Francis even. All of these figures who in a transcendent way served the poor because in serving them they saw Christ. So the dimension of Catholic social teaching that that opened still continues to rock my world. And did you have any uh, difficult experiences with them? Maybe being used or something? Yeah, what do you mean? Well, I know sometimes there's a fear of of getting, like, really working with the poor and maybe being taken advantage of oh, by them. Okay. Yeah, of course. You know, there, there were several times with, like, I'd give guy 20 bucks, and he said he was going to go use it on food, and I'm pretty sure he just went and bought beer with it or something, you know. Um, a couple things kind of helped me um, refine my, my position on that. One is that I realized, again, by reading the Gospels, Jesus quite clearly says, give to whom he asks, give to, give to whom whoever asks. He doesn't add a qualification, you know, unless, unless he's going to use that for bad stuff, you know, unless he's going to buy drugs with that money. He says, give to whoever asks. And so that uh, first made me that stopped me in my tracks. Uh, but then also I heard this great story from Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who's one of my great heroes. Um, his, his niece was visiting him in New York, and they were walking through the streets together, and they came across a, a homeless beggar, not uncommon in New York. Surely beggars approach Sheen all the time. But this beggar asked Sheen if he had any money, and he reached in his wallet and gave him everything he had, all those money. And, uh, as they walked away, his niece said, why did you do that? And he said, because he asked for it. And she says, but what if he goes and uses it on booze or on drugs? And Sheen said, I can't take that chance. And what he meant was there might be a chance that this person would abuse my gift, but there also might be a chance that that's Jesus in his most distressing disguise. And I don't know which one it is, but I'm taking a risk that it might be Jesus and it's worth me doing it. So I'm not sure that, that, that the Lord will ever fault us for self-giving generosity. Uh, we can't control how the other person uses our gift. We're just called to make the gift. So I, I've, I've wrestled with that. It's surely a, a problem, but th that's kind of how I've uh, reached my conclusions on it. And what about um, you two write about how the, the poor taught you about the beatitude, what it means to be poor in spirit. Yeah. 
Yeah, blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, both in Matthew and Luke. Uh, and we see what, what I experienced with these guys where they had no money. Most of them had no jobs as a result of being in prison. And once you get a felony, it's like almost impossible to find a job. So no money, no job, no food. Their clothes smelled horrible. But they were some of the most joyful men I've ever been around. Most of them deeply religious, by the way. So I found, too, that the poor are disproportionately religious compared to the general population. So you have the people in the most dire straits of life who have the most profound faith in God. And so you can't ignore that connection. You have to see how once people lose everything and God is the only thing that they have to hang on to, the f- becomes that becomes, yeah, and, and you can't help but have a flourishing faith in that situation. So they kind of convinced me of that convicted me of the fact that, you know, possessions and wealth and comfortability and ease, all that stuff can act as barriers to God because you rely on them, you count on them, your security is grounded in them instead of relying wholly on God. So that, that I think, it's at the heart of Jesus's, you know, commendation, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor in spirit. And uh, you, you're coming out with a book on the social teachings of the church. Can you tell us about that? I'd love to. So the book, which will be published by Our Sunday Visitor, is called Saints and Social Justice, A Guide to Changing the World. And I told you over dinner that one of the biggest surprises upon becoming Catholic was whenever I would, or I was, sorry, telling the father about this, that whenever I dropped the word social justice in a conversation, it was like a bomb going off. Like, I didn't realize how volatile and and uh, controversial the phrase was. And so I wonder why that was, you know. I had read the church documents from Leo XIII on with modern Catholic social teaching and saw this phrase, social justice, presented positively, but in modern times it's kind of become a dirty word, a dirty phrase. So what I wanted to do was to revive it, to reclaim it, to pull it away from its misunderstandings and misinterpretations and authentically present Catholic social teaching. And I need to do that. The best vehicle would be the saints, because here were not teachers but witnesses who lived out the church's social teachings. So in the book, I take the seven major themes of Catholic social teaching, things like the life and dignity of the human person and solidarity and care for creation and uh, the call to family and community and participation. And I have two saints who particularly embodied each of those seven themes. So we have people like Mother Teresa, naturally, uh, but Pope John Paul II, um, St. Damien of Molokai, uh, St. Peter Claver, several women saints. And uh, the result is this beautiful tapestry of Catholic social teaching in action. Here's what it looks like when it's done right. So I hope the book will will sort of illuminate Catholic social teaching in an authentic way that attracts people to it instead of it being a divisive, dirty word. Now, you're a, a young father. You have three kids, one on the way. How, how does that teaching affect your life? Because I, I hear that from parents sometimes. They say, well, Father talk about new evangelization. I'm full with my family responsibilities. What does that look like for a family man? Yeah, well, family life is an evangelical task. You know, as Pope John Paul II said, as the family goes, so goes the world. Uh, And so Catholic social teaching has always recognized the central prominence of the family, that if you don't get the family right, you don't get anything else right. And so for me, that means like my primary vocation is to be a great husband and a great dad who leads my family to heaven. 
And so unless I get that right, everything else doesn't matter. So I, I try to keep that um, as, as my, my, my focus, my center point. Um, anything that threatens that vocation is clearly not from God. So anything, any task, any apostolate, any request that, that I get that, while great on the surface, would pull me away from being a great husband or a great dad is clearly not aligned with my vocation. And so I kind of try to filter through everything I do through, the, through those lenses. You know, is this making me a better family man, a better, better father, better husband? Can you talk about uh, how you see the role of a father and a husband in the family? Yeah, well, much like the the father in the Trinity, you know, uh, one who is exclusively a man of self-giving love. Um, and by no means have I perfected this, but there's my goal. Um, one who sacrifices his own will, his own desires, his own comfort for the sake of his family. Of course, too, we can look to St. Joseph, you know, the, the primordial fatherly example who quietly in the background provided for his wife, Mary, and for his son, Jesus, and trained them both in the ways of holiness. I also like, relating to our earlier conversation, that Joseph is described as a just man. You know, so here's somebody who embraces the call to justice, both in his personal life and his family life, and that too is is what my goal is. I, I want to emulate the the just Joseph to my children and, and for them to see me not only as an image of, of God the Father, but an image of Joseph. Well, great. Thanks so much for chatting with us. Thank you, Father. My delight. <laughs>